The reading is from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of, the, of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are uh, able to freely meet in in this place, and uh, we thank you for our friendship with the schools in our parish and uh, uh, the good relations we enjoy with them. We thank you also for uh, the good relations we've had with St. Peter's and St. Michael's over over these uh, last months. We pray now, though, as we begin to assemble again as our church family, as we welcome back those who have been at other places, as we gather here, ready to go back to St. Andrew's next week. We pray that you would have a word for us as a church, that you would speak to us as we move into this new time, that we might hear your voice and obey it, for Christ's sake. Amen. So each of these messages uh, to the churches in in Revelation, the first three chapters of Revelation, each of them is a, a specific word from Jesus to a specific church. But there are also uh, lessons to, to us. This letter in particular is very specific to the church in Pergamon. Pergamon was a beautiful, art-filled city in the province of Asia, a bit north of Smyrna, which is the letter we looked at last week. Anyone been to Pergamon? Oh, great, good. Paul's been to Pergamon. Was it art-filled and full of culture? <laughs> Not anymore. Was there anything left of it at all, Paul? I'm glad you said that, because my next line in my note says, Pergamon was a center of worship of Dionysius, Zeus, and other pagan gods. Did you notice that, Pat? A huge, great kind of throne thing had been erected as to for pagan worship in the city, and uh, it was also the um, acknowledged center in Asia Minor for the imperial cult of Caesar. In 29 BC, the city had received permission to build and dedicate a temple to Augustus, the remains of which I think you probably saw when you were there. And perhaps more than any other of the six cities, the people of Pergamon were devoted to the worship of Caesar. It comes as little surprise then that Jesus should begin his letter with some very reassuring words. Verse 13, I know where you live. I know where you live. 
We've already seen that the Lord knows the churches, for he walks among them. But in this letter, however, as one commentator says, he makes it clear that his intimate knowledge extends not only to the works his people do, as in Ephesus, uh, and to the tribulations that they endure, as in Smyrna, but to the environment in which they live. He knows what it's like for them to be in this cult-dominated city. I know where you live. So Jesus is not ignorant of the fact that the Christian church is set in the non-Christian world, that it feels on all sides the continuous pressure of heathen influence, as John Stott puts it. That was the church in Pergamon, feeling on all sides the continuous pressure of heathen influence. I'm encouraged that in our wanderings, Jesus knows our situation. Jesus knows what's happening to us. But when we approach a passage of Scripture so obviously rooted in its culture as this one, it's important not to go straight to the question that we all want to ask and all tend to ask, which is, what is Jesus saying to us from this passage? A prior question, and one actually worth asking whenever we study Scripture, is what is the writer trying to say? What is Jesus trying to say to his or her readers in, well, not his, her readers, but it could have been elsewhere in the Bible. What is, what is the writer trying to say to the first hearers of this passage, of this letter? And only by asking that question can we get to the true meaning of the passage. If we don't ask that question first, what is the writer trying to say, we might miss the true meaning and avoid what is called proof texting which is finding a verse of scripture to say what we want to say. For instance, you could use this passage uh, very usefully, uh, but incorrectly, in a dispute with a neighbor, someone who perhaps his fence is annoying you or is overshadowing your house or they build an extension you don't like. You could send them verse 13, which would be a misuse of scripture. I know where you live, the throne of Satan. That would be an unhelpful way to use scripture. And avoiding this mistake is especially important when a passage is a bit obscure, as it is here. Because we're all initially a bit baffled by the references to Satan, to Antipas, who is he? What is the teaching of Balaam? Who are these mysterious Nicolaitans? And what on earth is the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name all about? Uh, It's all quite confusing. So let me quickly give you a, a quick tour through the letter to try and see what these things are about. As I said, it's the place where Satan has his throne because it's the center of pagan and emperor worship. There was, in fact, this huge altar set up in the city which could look like a throne as you approached it. So in the area of Chicago, for the Christians... It was rather, I suppose, we think of Chicago as the windy windy city, Oxford a city of spires, Hull, rather surprisingly, a city of culture. Sorry for those of you who come from Hull. uh, But Pergamon would have been known in the early church as the city of Satan. That's the nickname that the the town, that the city had. So that's that's why he calls it, it uses this strong language. Antipas was a Christian medical practitioner uh, in the town who had some time before the letter was written been martyred for his faith. He was an early Christian martyr in Pergamon. The teaching of Balaam 
is a reference to an incident recorded in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25. Balaam was effectively a sorcerer, and he was commanded by the kings of Moab and Midian to curse the people of Israel as they approach the promised land. It's a complicated story that you may remember from Sunday school, mainly because it involved, amongst other things, the celebrated tale of the talking donkey. Uh, In fact, uh, Balaam blessed the people of Israel. He refused to curse them, but then led them into a fatal compromise relating to food sacrifice to idols, pagan activity, and blatant immorality, which is referred to here in the letter. The details are a little bit vague from numbers, but basically the teaching is what is called antinomian, lawlessness. That is to say, holiness, right living, observing the Ten Commandments in uh, the teaching of Balaam matter less than they should. In fact, to some extent they don't matter at all, because Christians are spiritually saved. So what you do with your bodies doesn't really matter. How you behave does not really matter. And in Pergamon... This meant that Christians were being encouraged by the teaching of Balaam and by the Nicolaitans, who held similar views, it is thought, although it's not entirely clear what the Nicolaitans taught. But the emphasis was to compromise with the pagan cults and emperor worship in the city. In particular, gross immorality was associated with the pagan cults. Of course, many of you may know Uh, from reading elsewhere. So the Christian church was being led into compromise, fatal compromise, and uh, assimilation of pagan practices in the city. And their witness was being weakened by this teaching, which accommodated the prevailing culture. The hidden manna is another Old Testament reference to the provision of God in the wilderness. And John's thought is no doubt drawn to the manner because of the allusion to Balaam. He's kind of in his uh, thinking, or in Jesus's, uh, as he relates Jesus's word to the churches. John is John and Jesus together are kind of thinking about this adventure of the people of Israel in the wilderness, where the incident with Balaam occurred. And of course, in the wilderness, the people of Israel were fed with manna from heaven. And Hebrew tradition records that a pot of manna the provision of God in the wilderness, was preserved in the Ark of the Covenant, underground in Mount Sinai. That's what the Jews had a tradition believing, and that that manna would be preserved until the, until the Messianic age, when the manna would again become the food for God's people. When the Messiah would come, uh, the, uh, the prophet, probably Jeremiah in the tradition, would reappear, and deposit both ark and manna in the new temple in Jerusalem. And the Jewish believers in Pergamon would have been very familiar with that tradition and would have understood uh, what this reference was about. But we can be sure, we can be sure as Christians, that in Jesus' mind and in John's mind as he relates these letters, that the, uh, the manna is understood to be clearly the person of Jesus himself. The manna is Jesus, who referred to himself in John chapter 6, as you may recall, as the bread of life. He's the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven. So the manna here promised uh, to God's people is a heavenly reward, an eternal feasting, if you will, on all that God has for us in Jesus. And he says that it's hidden. I will give you some of the hidden manna 
in the sense of it being reserved, kept, only for those who enter into the age to come. So here are these Christians, tempted to compromise, but being promised that if they will remain faithful, God will sustain them with a true relationship with himself in Jesus. He will be there for them. They are also told that they will receive a white stone. There are many interpretations of the meaning of the white stone. You'll have fun in your house groups uh, discussing it, I'm sure. Uh, White stone signified, um, uh, for instance, acquittal by a jury rather than being found guilty. You were given a white stone if you were innocent. In pagan religions, in religions, people carried around an amulet or a stone with the name of their deity on as a sort of good luck charm. It was used as a sort of magical, sort of source of magical power. And if that's the background to this reference here, then the written name that we have will be that of God or of Christ, a new name. The point then is, is an allusion to ancient ideas of the power of the divine name, the divine name of Jesus. And of course, we believe that as Christians. We believe that we pray in power when we pray in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. To know the name of a deity is to possess a claim upon his help. And here the power of Christ to save and protect is exalted over that of his pagan rivals. That's what the letter is saying. You have a name that is much more powerful, incomparably more powerful than any of the names of these pagan gods around you in the city. A white stone was also actually sometimes used as a, as a sort of ticket for getting into different events, public festivals. And so there might, some think, think that the white stone is a symbol of, of the believer holding the secret of life, the ticket to admission to the kingdom of heaven. So there are a number of different interpretations. Revelation 19 seems to confirm that idea. So there are a number of ways in which the white stone can be interpreted. Finally, just to do to, to this quick tour through the chapter, the new name. The primary question when you're looking at this new name, we're told, you will recall, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Is this new name Christ's or the individual's? Some say that the name is a reference to the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, referred to in chapter 3 and verse 12. The believer suffering in this life as some of them undoubtedly were or had the prospect of suffering, are stamped, so to speak, with a new name. It's as if God has said to the people in Pergamon, I own you, you're mine. You don't belong any longer to the prevailing culture in your city. You are mine. I have marked you with my name, branded you, if you like, with the name of Christ. Others think that, and maybe both of these ideas are are in the thought, uh, uh, when the letter is written. Others think that the new name is one given to each individual believer and that it symbolizes, as one commentator put it, it symbolizes the individual's entry into a new life, status, or personality. In other words, you are given a new name. I am given a new name. So the thought then is compared with the idea of the new birth, becoming a new person when we're converted, a new creature in Christ, as in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. In other words, because those who are in Christ are new creations, we as Christians are 
new creations, it is only fitting that we should receive a new name, a name suitable for our relationship with Jesus, rather as it is traditional for a wife to receive a new name when she's married. We get a new name when we become Christ's. And the fact that no one knows this name except the individual who receives it points to the intimate, private nature of one's life in God. It's almost like a nickname that God has for you. It's a sign for these people as they receive the letter of a great intimacy between the God of the whole universe, their creator God who has rescued and redeemed them in Jesus and who knows them by name. There is something in our relationship with God as well as something that we uh, share with everybody. There is something that is very personal and private about our relationship with God. And of course that's clearly true. We all have our own relationship with God. So, Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamon that they are to be commended for being Christians at all in such a testing environment. It is something of a miracle that there is a church in Pergamon at all. Rather, as we might say now, that it's something of a miracle that there's a church in North Korea, or that there's a church growing in Iran, or that the church is surviving in Syria. At the time, it is surprising and rather wonderful that a Christian community had survived in Pergamon. Though seemingly not experiencing a high level of persecution at that moment, there's been trouble before, and Antipas was killed. But even then... Even when there was persecution, many in the church remained faithful. But, perhaps out of fear of further persecution, the church had tolerated in their fellowship false teaching, which was allowing fatal compromise, especially in the area of sexual immorality. This teaching was still on the fringe of the church. It was not yet approved, so to speak, by General Synod. It was still being debated There was great danger of moral drift resulting from the teaching, and it could result, it would result, according to the letter, in judgment, which God, which means God removing his blessing from the church unless they did something about it. Remaining faithful would reap a great reward, both now uh, through a life-changing relationship with Jesus now, the bread of heaven, and in the kingdom which is to come. So that's the situation in Pergamon. What does that say to us? Let me suggest just three things as I close that we might learn from this letter. Firstly, all wickedness is satanic. All wickedness is satanic. The modern, sophisticated, perhaps even scientific mind inevitably plays down the role of Satan. Belief in him and dramatic evidence of him is much clearer, it seems, in less educated societies than in our own. We all know that. There are manifestations of wickedness in other places which we seem to see less of here. I'm reminded of the... And that tempts people not to to think that Satan doesn't really exist, that there is no personal evil opposed to God. I'm reminded of the often told story of the three devils graduating from the College of Demonology, a story I've told before. And in the viva with the principal, the demons are asked what the message to mankind should be. How are they going to stop people believing in Jesus? And the first demon, trying to impress the principal, who is, of course, Satan, tells them, I'm going to tell people that God does not exist. 
and the principal dismisses him as a failure because so few will believe him. There's too much evidence for God's existence. The second bright little demon happens into the room and is asked the same question, what are you going to say to stop people Jesus, believing in Jesus? And he says, I'm going to say that Jesus was just a man. Hopeless, says the principal. Uh, the evidence for the resurrection is too strong. The third, who's a cunning demon, says, Sir, I'm going to tell them that you don't exist. Brilliant, says Satan. You can have a first. Satan is at work in our society, both inside and outside of the church. He is a defeated enemy. He's defeated at the cross. We need not fear him, but we should pray against him in Jesus' name, and we should note his tactics. His tactic is to, to destroy individuals' faith and lives through false teaching and through temptation. He attacks us through our love of money, our sexuality, and our identity. Money, sex, and power. And he is a cunning but defeated adversary. We should not underestimate him, but we should claim Christ's victory over him. So that is the first lesson that we should learn. All wickedness is satanic. Secondly, false teaching in the church comes in many disguises and often appears utterly harmless and reasonable. But if we abandon sound doctrine and biblical authority, we are soon lost. If you ever appoint a vicar to this church, when I eventually leave on that terrible gloomy day that awaits you all, um, on that day you will have on some stage to decide as a church who you will have as your minister. If you appoint a minister who does not uphold the sufficiency of Scripture, who does not believe in the, su- the sufficiency of Scripture, then the church will rapidly decline. You do not need me to apply that to our situation today more widely in the Church of England. The danger is apparent to all. There are great essentials which we must hold on to and not compromise. Those essentials are belief in the uniqueness of Christ, belief in the sufficiency of Scripture, belief in the centrality of the cross, and the belief in the necessity for conversion. These are essential evangelical truths which were neglected in Pergamon and are often neglected in the church in our own time. False teaching comes in many disguises and often appears utterly harmless, but it isn't. Thirdly, God will never abandon those who are faithful to him. God will never abandon those who are faithful to him. I mentioned last week at the four o'clock service the uh, email and um, uh, information that was flying around about the children who were being martyred in Iraq for their faith and refusing to renounce their faith. And it seems that not all the details of those stories completely be relied upon. Some of you may have read about that on the internet this week. But what is for sure, what is for sure is that terrible things are happening to brothers and sisters in many parts of the world. And it could be that it may become much harder for us to remain faithful to Christ than it has been up to now. It could be. Many people think that that will be the case in our country and in the West. This letter teaches us that God will be with us 
And even if Christians perish, as some inevitably do, and as some are, even in our own time now, even if Christians perish, our lives endure in heaven. We need to keep believing this. We need to keep trusting in Jesus and his coming kingdom and living godly lives, even when it doesn't suit us, even when we get ridiculed for it, even when we are tempted, as we so often are, to compromise both in our conduct and in what we believe, creed and conduct, to compromise with the spirit of the age. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Resist the devil. Remain faithful to Christian fundamentals. Trust that Jesus is with you. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, uh, that we are able to have a real sense uh, that you are with us in our church. Here we make many mistakes. We have many things, I'm sure, that we would be reproved for were Jesus to write to us. But we believe that you are with us by your Spirit. Uh, We claim the victory of the cross over Satan and all his works. We know that Jesus rose from the dead and that Satan has not had the last word. We pray that you would find us faithful to all that you've revealed in Scripture, that we might be a church that is faithful to these great truths. And we pray that as individuals and as a church family, when you return, you would find us trusting in you and completely ready for whatever you want to do in our lives. As we prepare to return to our own church building and welcome back those who have been meeting in other places, we pray that you would strengthen this faith in us Fill us afresh with your spirit and make us a community that is a powerful witness to the society amongst which we live, a society which does compromise with you, a society which which does question these great truths, a society which often turns its back on you. Help us to be loving and faithful and true to you in our generation for Christ's sake. Amen.